And if they're at all happy where they are and what they've become, from selling out to doubling down, let's talk punk rock business and what happens when the two get all mixed up. Here is your host, Bill Florio. Hey, this is Bill Florio. Yo, this is MC Charlie Boswell. Hey, it's Dave Harrison. All right, we got Porcel from Youth of Today. And it's long. <laughs> it won't be long when we're done with We it. better hurry up with this because I got to go see Speedy tonight. What's Speedy? One of the best movies ever. Don't you know anything? No. I've never heard of Speedy. Is that, is that one of those Cars movies? Nothing to do with it. I'm going to see it today. This thing went so long, you're making me late. Ah, oh, shoot. Well, you, well better anyway. get some, you better get some sleep because I, I, I suggest that we all take Porcel's yoga class tomorrow morning. <laughs> I ain't taking no yoga. I'm inspired. I thought I thought his approach to everything, you know, you know, it's funny because it's it makes sense that he's friends with Gavin because like they both these episodes kind of inspired me the same way. Like I felt like it was really just good to hear from someone who seems to like have gotten it figured out. And that may not be your path, but it seems like it really works for him. And it's, he seems like a really happy guy and, and, so and really satisfied. Disappointed. No, I thought this was, this was great. I and I was, a little I nervous. was disappointed with the no leather chops. <laughs> but you, did, you did get the, you did get the confirmation on that story, which I think is pretty great. I mean, yeah, that's, I, I really yeah. surprised that it actually happened. Yeah. I mean, oh, that sounded oh. like a bullshit story, but we yeah. knew the leather chops was bull crap. <laughs> I mean, just took out the rest of the story, which happened to be true. Yeah. Showing up eating a hamburger, trying to get into yeah, it today. Let's leave it for the podcast. <laughs> we learned a lot of things about Porcel's career path that we didn't know. And I don't think are really things he talked about a, a whole lot so everything from graphic design to um you know uh shoveling really, shit really interesting yeah <laughs> farm experiences i'm glad too that i was able to get that dig in but it went over his head so i don't have to feel bad about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah no this is good i mean it, 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 the other thing is like you know he's italian so you're just gonna stick to your guns no matter what you know exactly he's still, he's still a new york italian at the end of the day yeah, it's like <laughs> hey you know what i started out when i was 15 i'm still doing the same thing and i finally figured out how to make myself happy with it and that's that's great so let's celebrate that and let's roll the tape all right we usually start this out where you introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do for a living uh, what's up, everybody? I'm Purcell. Um, I play in a bunch of different hardcore bands, Youth of Day, Judge, um, Shelter. I was also in like Project X and Bold and Gorilla Biscuits. Um, and now I'm a yoga teacher, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> so let's go. So usually we jump right into what that what 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 our guest is doing now. But I want to ask you first, when you were when you were 15, you know, right when you when you got into punk rock and, and hardcore, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? When, when I was 15, I had no idea that my life was going to take the turn that it, that it took. You know, when I was 15, you just got to kind of like understand, I should probably start from the beginning. Like, um, let's start from the beginning. 
<laughs> I didn't grow up in the streets of the Lower East Side in New York City. You know, I don't have one of these like hardcore stories like living in squats and stuff like that. I actually grew up in Westchester. So if you know New York City, Westchester is like the suburbs that's right above New York City. That's really nice. I mean, you know, like Martha Stewart lives there and the Clintons live, you know, not too far from where, like, I grew up. We're not counting Yonkers. I was going to say the same thing. Not counting Yonkers. Yeah. Unfortunately for me, I grew up in Yonkers. (laughs) Yeah, you got to go a little bit farther north. It gets a little bit better. (laughs) The only thing I I remember from Yonkers is, is... Yonkers Raceway and never go there because you'll get knifed. <laughs> also, oh, for some reason in Yonkers, they call a sandwich a wedge for no explicit, explicable reason. <laughs> we call it a wedge where we grew up. All too. right. I don't yeah, understand that was, like a, that. that. was like a Westchester. Now, I don't get it either. <laughs> okay, so Westchester. No one else calls it a wedge. <laughs> you go to the Bronx, they won't give you nothing. If you That's right. A wedge. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I grew up in you know way upper middle class you know suburb my dad had a really good job he was a, he was a businessman he was a I'm not even actually quite sure exactly what he did he was a he was a food broker that worked with all these big food companies and he would get these food companies in like hospitals and you know different places and he would broker the deals and so, you know, he made he obviously made a lot of money at it. Even before him, you know, my my grandfather was also, you know, one of these like, um, you know, American dream success stories. My grandfather, when he was young, you know, when he was a young man in his 20s, he came from Italy with my grandmother. They were newly married and they wanted to come to America, from, you know, the land of opportunity. And he was dirt poor. You know, he shows up to Ellis Island, you know, with bare, with barely any money. And luckily, you know, he sort of gets a passport. As, ma- as a matter of fact, you know, my name is spelled really weird. It's P-O-R-C-E-L-L-Y. And it's just kind of like I've never heard of like I've heard of different Purcellis from Italy, but usually it's spelled P-U-R-C-E-L-L-I. And I found out later that the guy at Ellis Island probably couldn't spell. Exactly. Mm. You know, at Ellis Island, they just they didn't want the Italians coming in. So when the Italians came in, you know, they misspelled his name on the passport. And it's just kind of like been, you know, been like that ever since. So my grandfather was one of these guys, you know, came to America with nothing. He worked three jobs. And then at night he put him and my grandmother through college. They both went to they both went to pharmacy school. And, you know, at the time it was, it was weird because, you know, my grandmother used to always tell me when she was little that she was one of the first female pharmacists in all of America, because it was weird, you know, back in their day, not a lot of women kind of like went to college, especially for something like, you know, to become a doctor or a pharmacist or something like that. And so my grandfather worked super hard, you know, barely slept. I'm talking, he, he, he would work from the time the sun came up, you know, two or three jobs. So the sun went down, then they would both go to night school. You know, they saved all their money. And after they graduated with, with these, um, you know, pharmacy degrees, my grandfather had saved enough money to open up his own pharmacy in Nourishell, actually. So not far from Yonkers. Um, no, in, in Pelham. They lived in New Rochelle, but my grandfather's pharmacy was in Pelham. And it actually kind of took off, and he and he made a lot of money off this pharmacy. And um, later on, uh, the pharmacy, you know, he sold the pharmacy to, like, I don't know, CVS or, you know, some of these, like, you know, bigger companies. And he made a lot of money, and he gave a lot of that money to um, my father. And then my, you know, so... You know, my father also kind of had like that 
you know, put your nose to the grindstone. Life is about economic development. <laughs> so we lived in this big house. We lived in Westchester. So when I was 15, me and all my peers, you know, everybody at school, it was just like a given. We were kind of the kids with the silver spoons in our mouth. We were all going to college. We were all going to good colleges. We we're going to graduate college. And we were like guaranteed that we were going to, you know, have degrees and, you know, get good jobs. And that, and, you know, my kind of like, uh, you know, my whole school was sort of like fast tracked in that direction. And truth be told, a lot of people that I went to school with, they became doctors, lawyers, CEOs, you know, incredibly wealthy people, because that was just kind of like, you know, it was different back then, like a college degree meant a, a lot more than it does now. You know what I mean? Where people can basically learn stuff on Google, <laughs> you know, have to go to college to, you know, learn stuff. So um, when I was 15 years old, that's what I thought I was going to do. I thought like, you know, punk rock is kind of like my fun, my fun, you know, hobby or whatever. But when I was 18, when I turned 18, you know, I was going to apply to colleges and I was going to, you know, head off into the probably the business world like my dad. Uh, I'm just fascinated uh, by the fact that your grandparents literally sold drugs <laughs> and it sounds like your dad sold meat <laughs> probably probably i was always into into playing guitar and being in bands i was in a band in in middle in uh junior high school called the young republicans then i joined um the band that ray capo played drums in violent children and we knocked that around for you know about a year when that I was in the band, and nothing really happened. You know, we played some fun shows and we opened up for some bigger bands like Agnostic Front and Chrome Mags and stuff like that. But it wasn't like anything was really happening with the band. And then I turned eighteen. It was my senior year, and Violent Children broke up, and me and Ray started Youth of Today. And I tell you, when he moved from drums to vocals. It was almost like the band exploded from the very from the very first show. It was weird. I'm telling you, it was weird. Like we got this band together, we played one show, and everybody just loved the band. Like even when we were like this small tiny band playing all these basement shows, it just seemed like wherever we played, people would just lose their mind over the band. And um the band literally just got bigger and bigger and bigger and and it was like it was like a monthly thing. Like, you know, we would play, you know, we started playing and then like a month later, the band was like three times as big. And then a month later, you know, we're playing in New York, we're playing Philly and we're playing CBGBs and the band's getting like big and big. It was really, it was kind of a weird, you know, it was just a weird time. Like it's, it's, I, you know, now that I'm into, you know, Krishna and I'm into yoga and stuff like that, it's all just kind of karma. You know, sometimes you just have this destiny and the destiny starts to unfold. And that's kind of what it even felt like. You know, that's what I was going to ask. Thing. Did it feel like, did, like, you know, you know, when you're like playing a sport and you know, you're, you're going to hit every basket you shoot, you know, like that kind of stuff. Did you feel like when the band was taking off that you just could do no wrong? I felt like the band was really good. I did think that we were like a really good band and, you know, Capo was just such an amazing front man that we could roll in and we could play with anybody. And man, they like, if, if you had youth of today, open up the show back in the day when we were like firing on all cylinders and Capo was going nuts and he's like, you know, commanding the crowd. That was a tough act to follow. <laughs> you know, I mean, you guys you, went nuts you, last month. I mean, you guys, like I was just telling you before, like that yeah. was, that was a hard act to follow last month. Yeah, we'll, and we'll I mean, Ray, Dave, I don't remember. 
And I mean, Ray, <laughs> Ray still is a great front man. He's a very inspirational guy. You know, he's very passionate about what he talks about on stage. And not a lot of bands were doing that back then. And things just started getting really big. As a matter of fact, you know, we were a band for about like six months. And then Kevin Seconds, you know, Seven Seconds were the were the biggest band in hardcore, the, the biggest active band in hardcore. You know, Black Flag and Minor Threat had broken up and all those bands. And like the new guard after them was Seven Seconds. And they would go on tour. Every single one of their shows were sold out. They were one of my favorite bands. And so Kevin Seconds, we played a show with them and Kevin immediately wanted to sign us. So you can imagine for me being 18 years old, my favorite band in the world, Seven Seconds. Now the singer has a label and he wants to sign our no-name band. I mean, things are just kind of like happening at such a fast rate. It's almost like all my dreams are coming true. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, seven seconds before our record even came out, they brought us to California. You know, I was still 18 years old. That winter, we went to California. We played this, you know, we, we toured with seven seconds. And it was just like a really weird thing. No one had heard of the band, but... Every single show we played, people were just kind of like losing their mind and like they just really liked the band. And I think it, that's what really kind of established us. Like after we did that West Coast tour, you know, you didn't have like marketing and the Internet and, you know, stuff like that. And like everything was just like word of mouth. And there was kind of a big buzz about this band from New York, you know, Youth to Today. Oh, my God, they played with Seven Seconds. They opened the show. They were awesome. And um you know, by the time that, uh, by, by the time that um, our first single came out, "Can't Close My Eyes," you know, we were doing headlining tours, which was which was crazy for you one know? EP. And yeah, you're already you're already doing that off of one EP. You don't even have an LP out at that point. Yeah, and you know, I actually went. To, uh, you know, I did a year of college. Yeah, I went to SUNY Oswego. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to, you know, I, I, instead of studying, I would I would spend all my money on on train fare, and I'd go to Albany, and I would go to shows. And like Youth Today was still playing a bunch. Those were great shows, though. It was worth. They it. were incredible. They're incredible. <laughs> Albany was one of my favorite places to play. It had a great scene back then. It was my own one of my only places. To play. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> what what yeah, band were you I mean, in? So it's, it's, it's hard. Oh, cool. Awesome. I remember you guys. You were very distracted from whatever your oh dad my wanted. God. Like, <laughs> like... like forget like like even even um even applying for colleges. Like I like I, I wasn't even interested. Like things were happening with the band. And you know, I was really I was one of those people that was full on hardcore. Like you have some people that hardcore is kind of like a cool, amusing thing, and you know, they go to shows, they geek out and they do a stage dive and then they go home and i lived breathed everything hardcore <laughs> i was one of those type of people like play the records you know play guitar all i wanted to do was play in a band all i wanted to do was play shows and it really became like an all-encompassing thing as, as a matter of fact that year that i went to college was like a joke like i was just writing songs you know playing guitar figuring out and i knew you know, things were going so good for you today that I knew the next year I wasn't going to go back. And um, so our first record came out and my dad thought I was going to go back to college. And man, oh, man, that was one of the hardest things that I had to do to tell my dad that, hey, guess what? I'm not going to college. And he was so disappointed, man. Wow. What do you think of that song, Expectations, then? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, song, that song was written by Capo about me and my dad. Actually, actually, because my dad had all these expectations of like, you know, I was going to go oh, to wow. college and 
you know, I was going to make something of myself and make a lot of money. And uh, my life was just moving in a different direction at like at like an amazing pace. And then forget it. Like once Breakdown the Walls came out and we moved to New York City and Walter joined the band and like, you know, Sammy was in the band. I mean, it was it was it was really weird. Like things just kind of exploded. And, you know, we were doing these headlining tours. You know, we went to Europe. I mean, when this thing first started, when I was like 18 years old, we started the band. I never thought I was going to tour Europe. (laughs) You know what I mean? No bands toured Europe back then. You know, you couldn't afford the plane ticket. Um, what to speak of even finding somebody that's going to set up a European tour. It just seemed like something that was so, you know, impossible. And, and you know, things started happening. So I put school and I put financial security and everything <laughs> on the back burner. And I just I just went with it. You know, it, it wasn't even something that like um, it was almost like it chose me and I didn't chose I didn't choose it. You would have let all those people down if you dropped out too, right? They're your friends, and yeah, and, there, and there never mind. No, never mind that it was working out. <laughs> there, there was there was no reason to drop out because the band was kind of like it, you know, if you were around during those days, like it was kind of a phenomenon. Like it was really weird. It was, um, I, yeah, it was <laughs> like st- like straight edge exploded and like kind of especially in Europe. Were, it was like a cult. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> well, not well. That was that was later because when you said they I first know, toured Europe, it was it was like people spitting at us. <laughs> I'm actually friends with uh, Michael. I think it was the tour manager when you went with Lethal Aggression. Are you kidding me? Really? Yeah. Yeah. I stayed at his house for a week in Bremen. W- was Michael the guy that had uh, like he had like a weird birthmark on his hand? I think so. Yeah. I, don't know. I think he works in a v- VW factory now. Really? Yeah, he was on that tour. He, he, he was one of the chess pieces on that tour. <laughs> I don't know who's going to pay for this, but $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests, plus tons of extra stuff if you become a Patreon supporter. That's right. We cut like 20 minutes out of every episode that you're missing. So we also have a table in the back with T-shirts and stuff for sale. We should charge people to get the cut version. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's for sale at Kill by desk.com and please try not to fuck up the bathroom or they're not going to let us have shows here anymore what was really cool about it where which kind of like led to my uh my work decisions later in life was it was sort of bigger than us like we were championing things and you know principles um that were bigger than us you know, we were into vegetarianism. We were, the whole band was straight edge and we really believed in it. You know, we, you know, we believe that, um, you know, cause in the punk scene, there was so many people that were like ODing and just like getting stupid drunk every day. You know, you, you know how it, it can be and it gets real dark, real fast. And so we just thought straight edge was such a better way to live. Like we sincerely thought that. And when you kind of, you know, so it wasn't just the band. It was like the band was was, you know, putting forth kind of like a message that we thought was really important. And it really gives you like a purpose driven life, you know, and I think I've been chasing that my whole life. Like, I don't want to just make a lot of money. I don't want to climb the corporate ladder. Like, I want to make a difference in my life. I'm only here for a few years. Like, you know, I, I want to put my energy towards something that's going to like, you know, help other people and, you know, help other people progress in life and, and, and live a happier, more 
um, switched on life. And youth of today, you know, touring with youth today in like my early days, it it gave me that sense of having a purpose. And that to me meant so much more than any amount of money that, that I could make if I kind of went to college and did the, and did the corporate thing. So, and to me, that was, that was such a great life lesson to learn at a young age, because a lot of people don't learn that lesson and they'll chase the American dream till they're like, you know, in their sixties and then they'll um, retire and be like, what the hell did I do with my life? My dad was one of these guys that had the big house in the big backyard. And we lived right on this like beautiful forest and he always had nice cars. And we like literally had the white picket fence in front of our house. And I could see that he wasn't happy. I mean, he went to a job. He didn't like his job, uh, you know, and plus he had to go into New York City every day. So that's like, you know, 45 minute hour commute each way. And then he would come back very late. And I could just see he was like burnt out. And although he had all the things that they tell you that are going to make you happy, I could tell that he was deeply unhappy, you know, and it just it just didn't translate. And so I always looked at him and my dad was really kind of pushing me to kind of follow him. And even from like an early age, when I was like 13 and 14, I was like, do I really want to end up like my freaking dad? No way. <laughs> so that was that that actually was also a big influence on me looking at him and even like, you know, looking looking around like my neighbors and you know stuff like that. It doesn't translate. You know, yoga tells us that yogis have been telling us that for thousands of years. If you think you're going to be happy through material means and economic development, it doesn't translate. It really doesn't. Well, you, you were doing like odd jobs and stuff, right? Like you were like cleaning houses and stuff like during the Youth of Today era, yeah, like to, in between yeah, tours? Yeah, we did, you know, because we were going on tour so much that you can't have a regular job. So when we got back to New York, we would clean houses, you know, and back then it was really, it was kind of easy. Like we would just put up flyers. We would get a ton of people that, I mean, we had so many people call us to clean their house. We couldn't even, we could have started our own house cleaning business and made a huge business. <laughs> like I kid you not. And we would put up just a, like a bunch of flyers, um, you know, in in the village where we live. And we would just get it was it was, it was before Roomba. <laughs> it was before everything. Well, I was thinking it, it could be like you could you could if you were doing that now, you could brand that as like you know clean cut uh, clean cut guys like helping you move and stuff. I mean, I feel like that could be a that could be a huge business now. It'd be like those college guys hauling junk or whatever. Yeah, and it's that's called. exactly how we pitched it. It was so funny because I made a flyer. When I was like 19, we were living in New York City. And I don't know, somebody actually had the flyer and they kept it all these years. And they showed him, hey, look, I got your I got your house cleaning flyer. And I drew a picture of me and Capo, like a cartoon of me and Capo. I said, college students, which was a joke because we both had dropped out. College students working their way through college. We paint, we clean houses, we do all this stuff. And, you know, it had a little thing at the bottom where you write the number and they could, like, pull off the, the number. And uh, <laughs> This would be the best bootleg <laughs> cover ever, by yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah, I know. I couldn't believe the guy had it. It was so funny. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, we actually, you know, we could pay our rent and do all that stuff. And it, it was kind of crazy, too, because we would go on tour so much that we would we were breaking leases left and right. I mean, we would get an apartment, you put you put down, you know, your your down payment for it and your security, and we would lose the security every time because after four months we'd move out. And so we lost a lot of security deposits. I feel like you guys could have worked out something with other bands. It's kind of <laughs> like the like flight attendants do, where like when you're not there, someone else well, is we there. Actually, like it's we like we actually you're... did that later on. 
we had that schism HQ in Williamsburg. And whenever we went on tour, the, the, the boiling point guys would move in um, because I think they lived in the dorms and they didn't like living, living in the dorms. And they were kind of, they were kind of rich kids too. And yeah. so whenever we moved out, they would just move in and pay the rent. So we got to keep that apartment. So that was like the longest apartment that we had. Most of the apartments I would keep for like three or four months, you know, that's, even like two months, you know, it was just crazy how much we were touring. So let, let's kind of talk about the timeline a little bit, you know, so I was in Yutta today, you know, I was in Judge, I was in, you know, and the last band that I was, that I was in was, um, was Gorilla Biscuits, you know, and this, this was before Shelter and, um, Gorilla Biscuits broke up because Walter really wanted to um, focus on Quicksand. Quicksand were really taking off. And I thought like, and I was probably like 23 years old at this time. And I thought, this is it. This is like the end. And, you know, <laughs> this is the end of my music career. Like it was a fun ride. And now I got to get serious about life. And um, it's a real daunting thing when the only thing you've done since you were a kid was being a punk band. <laughs> and you have absolutely <laughs> no resume. You're 23 years old. You quit school. You know, uh, it's, it was almost like now what the, you know, like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? And it was around that time that I really got into Krishna. And that's when I moved to, uh, I moved to a Krishna temple. It was a, it was a time where I was just kind of like, it was a position where I was just thinking like, what's important in life? Like, what do I really want to accomplish in life? Like, I got to find out, you know, I just don't want to take this ladder and put it up against a random wall and start climbing that ladder. I want to figure out what's the right wall to put it, put that ladder on and then climb it. And so it was a really, it was really like reflective time in my life where what do I want? What's going to make me happy? Who am I? What is this world all about? You know, I was just like one of those seeker type guys. Well, that's impressive that at 23, you had the presence of mind to take a step back and be like, I'm going to do this mindfully and find, you know, find the right path as opposed to just, you know, being pushed in whatever direction um, the tide was I, mean, I, could, I, I was there. I was there when you sold a bunch of records. I got your Let's Barbecue 7-inch. Oh, really? I love that 7-inch. I wish I still had it. <laughs> yeah, I sold all my records. I donated it to um, – I donated all the money that I got from the records, which was like a – pitiful pittance for i mean i had one of the best record uh, collections reconstruction records everybody no longer open yeah <laughs> i mean i sold my whole entire record collection for fifteen hundred dollars i think i had a stack of chunk kings i had two chunking test pressings i mean that's like fifty thousand dollars right there <laughs> i was gonna say one of those just sold for like seven grand yeah, i'll just it? tell you right now rich derespita and freddie alva got every other record that i i could have that less barbecue <laughs> i had every i had every single misfit single and not only did i have every single misfit single they were all signed by glenn danzig i got them all signed i mean i just i had everything on every colored vinyl uh but i just took all that money and i and i donated it to this one author that had really helped me he was kind of like a mentor of mine and he wrote books basically about Krishna. And so I gave him the money to print. I sold all my records. I gave him the money and he printed a book called Lives of the Vaishnava Saints. And I'm pretty proud of that because whenever I see that book, I think, man, I, I helped to print that book. And it's kind of a good feeling. When you found Krishna, was there was there a part of like, was there anything involved with, you know, did I know you said you were already kind of on that path without even really, you know, fully realizing it with youth of today and some of the things that you, you know, you embraced was, was there anything that was difficult in that process? I mean, was the, was the, was the transition of acceptance there, uh, a difficult, uh, uh, 
path as well? Or do you feel like it was kind of just a natural fit as opposed to going that traditional route of, of chasing money? Well, do you think it was easy to sell everything you own? leave all your friends and go move to a farm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's where we're Question getting answered. at. It was like, like, you know, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, but, you know, especially for me, you know, at that time, I had been on one crazy roller coaster of a ride for like five years. You know what I mean? Youth of the Day took me all around the world, stage dives, punk rock, fights, battling skinheads, you know, the, it was a crazy adventure. <laughs> And for the Gavin did tell us some of those stories, yeah. by the way. No, that, was talk, no, that was before. I mean, let me tell you, <laughs> Gavin. I knew Gavin when I was in high school. Like he went to the high school next to me, and we both played football. And um, I remember one time I went to party at his. Like we had we had beaten his team. He went to this high school called Fox Lane, and I went to this high school called John Jay, and we were bitter rivals. And so we played them in football, and we won. And then they had a party and just a shoving in their face, our whole entire football team went to their party <laughs> like the day after we beat them. <laughs> and, we, and I knew that I was like, there's, there's, I mean, we all knew there's going to be some kind of fight. <laughs> you know what I mean? So Gavin was on the other team and we had this, like, we had one guy on our team that was like the toughest kid in the whole school. And Gavin was drunk. I mean, I was straight edge, but Gavin was drunk and he was like popping off to this guy like, ah, F you guys. I mean, of course, like, you know, the, you know, there was a, there was bound to be a fight. <laughs> we were like encroaching on their territory, but Gavin was getting real lippy with the toughest guy in our whole school. And so I pulled Gavin aside. I was friends with Gavin. I was like, Gavin, you're drunk, dude. You don't want to fight this guy. He's going to kill you. This is the toughest guy in the whole school. <laughs> I'm your friend, Gavin. Don't fight this guy. And I tell you, sure enough, Gavin ends up fighting this guy and beat the shit out of him. I couldn't believe it. I was so <laughs> Gavin's a tough dude, man. He's a tough dude. He tells the story about you guys going to frat parties and charging admission. Yeah, we did a bunch of crazy stuff. <laughs> He, he did admit that he was the bad influence on your life. Yeah, he was the instigator. <laughs> yeah, he was uh, he, he was crazy back then. But, you know, he's, he's a cool guy. I love Gavin. He's awesome. How did it lead to yoga? And when did you make a decision like, all right, I'm going to do this for money and oh, for myself? Okay. So, so this, was, uh, this was what I was going to say. Like, I needed to take a step back in life. Like, it, it was just nonstop touring and playing and traveling and you know, it was fun and it was great. And it was an incredible learning experience. But now I kind of finally had a second where I wasn't in a band. You know, I was at the age where I thought I was going to turn my life into a whole different direction. And I wasn't going to do music anymore. And I was, you know, think trying to think of like practically the direction I wanted my life to go in. So I took a step back and, you know, I moved to that Krishna farm and it was great. It was like a, it was like a detox. You know what I mean? Like you've been eating, you know, tons of food for so long sometimes you just need to just like go on a fast <laughs> you know what i mean and so that was like the, the point of my life it was like a detox from punk rock and fighting and hardcore and the lower east side and you know all that stuff i just wanted to get away from it and just like get my head right before i decided what direction my future was going to move into and you know it was weird it was just like it was almost like you ever see that scene in the Godfather, I think it was Godfather 2, where Al Pacino's like, I keep trying to get out, 
but they keep on pulling me back in. <laughs> like, it was like that. Like I thought I wasn't going to do music anymore. And that was part of my past. And then one day Capo shows up at the farm and he was like, this is so cool that you're a devotee. Uh, we're doing this band shelter. We need a guitar player, you know, please, please join the band. And he kind of like talked me into it. So you, how good, so how, you guys wait, how good did you get at farming at that point though? <laughs> Man, let me tell you, dude, farming, was like I was always into fitness and working out and you know doing sit-ups and doing push-ups you know like trying to stay active and fit and healthy you know that was just part of like my my mindset you know especially in like youth of today we were like the anti-punks like we were into eating healthy and keeping fit and you know it was like the most unpunk thing you could do at the time but you know that's just I was into it I was into health and um, so I was always very, very active. I was always very athletic. Like I said, I played on a football team. I was never as jacked in my life <laughs> working at a farm, dude. Oh, my God. Every day I, t- I would take care of a, a cow barn. My day started with two hours of shoveling every single day. Try try shoveling for 20 minutes, dude. It's like backbreaking. Every day, two hours. Damn. <laughs> I was chopping down trees. You ever chop down a tree with an axe? You no. want to get buffed? Chop down a few trees with an axe, dude. I like. I was at that farm for six months, and I was just like jacked. <laughs> like I was eating healthy food. You know, we were growing all of our own food. I was eating really good, fresh, healthy, organic food. I was like this corn-fed, jacked farmer dude. That's <laughs> just like what I turned into. Were you shoveling shit then? Yeah. Cow manure. Like yeah. We'd take it out. We'd spread it on the fields. I thought Ray was the one that – I thought Ray was the one that did He did it too. He did it too. Like Life lessons. Way, way early. He did it for way less time than I did it. I was actually like <laughs> – I was like a straight-up real farmer there for, for six months. It's like, oh, who's talking about it? Who's actually doing it here? Yeah, he did it for like, he, he did it for like two weeks. <laughs> but yeah, and then like I joined Shelter, and that was really – that was probably the strangest part of my music quote-unquote career – because we ended up getting signed by Roadrunner, which was like a huge label at the time. Like we didn't even we didn't even know, but Roadrunner's influence in the world music scene was like incredible. Like they were huge in Europe, they were huge in Eastern Europe, they were huge all over South America. You know, they had offices in South America. Sepultura was like the Metallica of South America. You know, Typo Negative was getting big. Dog Eat Dog were getting big. You know, Typo Negative had gold records. Like, it was really kind of like an exciting time. And for the first time in my life, I actually started making a lot of money at music. It was crazy, dude. Like, I started making, like, real money. Like, I started making, you know, well over $100,000 a year doing music. You know, and before that, it's like, you know, are we going to have gas money to get to the next show? And now I'm playing music and we're going on tour with no doubt. And we're playing arenas and, you know, we're going to Europe and we're doing festival tours where you're playing, you know, 50,000 people to a hundred thousand people every single night at big festivals, all these huge bands. And, you know, yeah. it was I crazy. Heard, I, heard, I heard Steve Reddy carried so much cash for you guys. He had to carry a gun. Uh, I don't think he, he didn't carry a gun. <laughs> that, that's, that, that's uh Shinfo. <laughs> Basically, shelter became a very lucrative job for me, <laughs> which is very kind of strange and, you know, a little bit difficult to navigate, you know, especially as being a Hare Krishna devotee. But, you know, all in all, I think we did pretty well with it. 
I don't think we became overwhelmed with it. And I think we always had that idea that shelter was more than just a band. We were also trying to put out a message and to put out that message, we had to be sincere in our own lives with that message. And, you know, I think all in all, I think we did a, we did a pretty good job navigating like uncharted waters, especially for a Hare Krishna devotee. You know what I mean? To be in this big popular band, you know, going on tour with no doubt who at the time were the hugest band in the country. I mean, it was, it was, it was strange and, and it was cool. And well, all good things must come to an end. You know, as shelter took off, was there, was there ever a fraction, you know, a fractioning of the Krishna members that you knew? Like, were there people that were all for that? And then were there people that were against it? I mean, was that, was there, was there any, ever any friction in you becoming what you were as a band? Oh my God. In the beginning of shelter, it was nothing but friction. It was really, it was really weird because it reminded me of when youth today first started. I mean, you can imagine straight edge died with minor threat. The scene had gotten really crazy, especially with drugs all over America, all over the world. Like the punk scene was just like, it meant you were, you went out and you got drunk and you got messed up and you snorted Coke. I'm Dave Steinstein. That's true. No fruit punch allowed. He was one of the, he was one of, him and Steve Reddy ran a tight ship. <laughs> I remember no Steve Reddy. No gun. I remember Steve. Dave made me go by the beer for suicidal tendencies. Oh, I was at that show. What a great show that was. I came from Oswego. Well, I'm, I'm the one that brought the really? beer. <laughs> I remember Steve Reddy, like if anybody got drunk and was causing trouble, Steve Reddy would gladly beat them up in the, in the, in the alley behind the, the BFW hall. Gladly. That's a Steve Reddy. I remember. He was looking for it. He couldn't wait till somebody was just getting drunk and obnoxious. But he's a successful businessman now. We need oh to my God. What, I mean, he's, he's, he's uh, it's just, it's so incredible what that guy's done. I mean, you should really interview him because, you know, he's I on remember, the list. He's on the list. If you want to, I remember when he, I, I, we sold him equal vision, and the and the only reason why we sold him equal vision because we had we had completely paid for shelter attaining the supreme. The band paid for the pressing and everything, and then he was going to take over equal vision right after that. And we also had a computer, and so we're like, okay, Steve, we already paid for this record. We have this like computer. We have this office. Give us like a little money for equal vision. So I think he bought equal vision from, I, it was something like $500, like ridiculous. He basically, <laughs> basically paid for the computer. We had already paid like $2,000 recitating the Supreme. So he got it like a pretty good deal. Does it hurt more to sell your records or sell your record label? Uh, well, considering he made millions of dollars from the record label, that probably hurts a little bit. But I mean, you know, he, he did all the work. I mean, it's like, it's really amazing. I mean, I remember when he started Equal Vision and he, he and he had this like he started doing the merch. I mean, he makes most of his money off the merch these days. I mean, it's a, it's like if you see his operation, you're like, it's so impressive because I remember when he started Equal Vision, he had a house that had a barn in the back of it. And he had his his three. He had his four color hand press that he would do the shirts on. And one of the colors was broken. So it was only three colors. It was in the basement of a barn every single time it rained it would flood like literally like two feet of rainwater. so sometimes i would go back there and steve would be in two feet of water in these big rubber farm uh. boots like printing these t-shirts <laughs> on this broken three color hand press and what it turned and like you go to equal vision now where he's got like you know 15 automatic presses and it's like one of the biggest merch companies on you know in the like northeast 
it's just like, wow, what this guy had, you know, just turned into, into just by, by being like having some savvy, you know, some business savvy and a lot of hard work. The guy's amazing. And I tell, mm-hmm. but those original t-shirts are probably going for a thousand dollars on eBay now. <laughs> only three colors. Cause he, cause the fourth color was broken on the press. So I only had three colors, but you know what, you know what? I, I really respect Steve because he's a devotee and he's one of those guys. that's like, this isn't my money, whatever. I had this karma that, you know, I built up this company and it was just kind of like part of my destiny. And he is such a charitable guy. And he's always thinking of how he can use that money to serve other people. And he's so fair to his employees and he treats them well and he pays them well. He's a good guy. He's one of these guys that he's a businessman, but he's like, you know, he's a spiritualist first, a businessman second. And it really reflects on how he thinks of money and how he uses money and how he like, you know, he he wants to do some good things with his money. And he and he has and. Really incredible person. Like seriously, get that get that guy in the show because um, <laughs> I'm I'm super impressed with him. <sighs> All right. Cool. Anyway, so so we're, we're still going down the timeline here. All right. So we haven't, we haven't even, gotten to the part where I We haven't even gotten to the part where I got my first job. <laughs> there's this whole time I never even I never had a freaking job in my life up at that point apart from like cleaning a few houses like in between oh your tours. dad was so mad he was so angry oh my so god angry. my dad you know my dad was so upset about the whole punk rock thing he never came to a show the first show he came to was when we played an arena with no doubt and he actually came to the show and, you know, there's like 15,000 people there. My dad's like got the front row ticket. He's actually like in the crowd watching the show from the front row. And um, he came up to me afterwards and he came backstage and he was like, and he kept on saying, John, and we kind of talked in this like really weird kind of Italian accent, John, I'm so, <laughs> I'm so. Oh, proud of you, John. Look what you've done. Look, look, you you finally made it. You finally made it. And when he had said that to me, you know, of course, I was just like, oh, thanks, Dad. But inside, I was like, I was super pissed off. Like, I made it. Motherfucker, I had made it when I was doing Youth of Today, and you thought I was throwing my (laughs) life away. I really felt like that. I really felt like that. It was like, this isn't about fame and money and like you know i never did music for that for me music was like a mission like i'm out to spread spread a positive message music had completely changed my life and upgraded my life in so many ways and i was so indebted to bands like seven seconds and minor threat and the influence they had the incredible great influence they had on my life that's why I did music. Like I wanted to pay it forward. I wanted to, you know, put out music that was going to affect a young kind of impressionable kid. And to me, that was the real success of it. It wasn't the money and the arenas and opening for some band who was on the radio. And I was really just kind of bummed that like that was his takeaway. And I tell you, it was really hard for me. Like this was probably the hardest time in my life when I moved out of the temple and I got married and my my what you know i'm divorced now but my wife you know back then got pregnant and then she was like i'm pregnant now we're gonna have a kid you're not running all around the world anymore man like this music stuff is is ending (laughs) and then it was like you know it 
it really hit me hard. Even though I had mon- I saved a lot of money from shelter and I was really thankful that I did save that money. But now it's like I'm 30 years old. I'm married. I have a kid on the way. I've never had a job in my life except playing punk rock. <laughs> and so I was thinking like, I have to do something practical, but I don't want to do something soul crushing. What do I like to do? And, you know, I was always the person that was very artistic, that was making the flyers, that was designing the album covers. And I was always like into like, you know, making sure that the T-shirts looked right. And I had kind of a creative eye. And so I figured I'm going to become a graphic designer because, you know, that's what I like to do. And it's something that I can make money at. So, you know, I went back to school and, you know, I, um, you know, got a graphic design degree uh, and, um, I started doing that. And later on, you know, uh, I became a graphic designer. I, I, you know, I worked for a bunch of different companies and it was my first taste of nine to five. Steve Reddy wouldn't give you a job. Yeah. Good, good point. Steve Reddy. He wouldn't, he wasn't going to give you a job. I did work for Equal Vision (laughs) for about six months. I did. When I moved to upstate New York, we actually moved up. We were living in Boston and my son was born in Boston and we kind of just said, we don't want to raise our kid in the city. And so we moved to upstate New York near where Steve Reddy was. There was a lot of devotees that were living up here, a lot of, you know, Christian devotees that had families that had moved upstate New York. And so, you know, I I took the money. I bought a house. I bought a house right across the street from Steve Reddy, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Literally, we were on the same block. It's like if you if the house that was right across the street, my house was two streets over. And so I bought a, you know, I took that, you know, I took that money that I, I had saved. I bought a house. And, you know, for the first six, you know, and I was, I was still going to, I was still, um, kind of still get, you know, getting, um, my graphic design certificates and I was going back and I was getting like advanced Photoshop certificates and stuff like that. And so I was still kind of working on that. And so during that six months, I, wor- I did work at Equal Vision when I moved there. And so I was, I was grateful to see, cause you know, you move in upstate New York, there's barely any place to work. And so Steve really like, you know, helped me out and he gave me a job and, um, and, I and started, you didn't have to wear any big rubber boots or anything. No, by this time he, his operation, <laughs> I thought, like, I thought even back then, like, Oh my God, look what this guy's turned it into. And now it's like a hundred times bigger than that. So it's, you know, it's pretty incredible, but that was really like probably my first kind of like real job was working at equal vision, like of my first like nine to five job. And then I got this graphic design job that was that was um, near Saratoga Springs in upstate New York, which was pretty far from where I lived. And so I got my first taste uh, and my son was was born at this point. And it was actually like it was a pretty well paying job. Like, you know, back in the day, you know, when, you know, this was like in the 2000s where to do like web design and stuff like that, you could actually make a lot of money at it. It's not like these days when you have like Squarespace and anybody could just make a, uh, a website. Like you actually had to hire a person who knew how to make a website back then and pay them to maintain the website and stuff like that. So it was actually making some decent money, but in a sense, it was super soul crushing. It was like, I had to wake up at five o'clock in the morning You know, I had to, you know, because I was, you know, I had my whole Krishna practice that I would do and I would wake up and I would chant and I would, you know, you know, uh, that was still, you know, even to this, you know, that was always just a big part of my life. And, you know, I would, I would, I would even study and stuff like that. I would wake up and I would, you know, study different books 
And then I would drive an hour to work, man. And let me tell you, that that gets old real fast, commuting for two hours a day. And, you know, I would work there. I worked there all day. And it's like I was into the, you know, it was sort of like fulfilling for me because it was kind of creative and I got to be creative. But, you know, I'm working for somebody else's dream. You know what I mean? It wasn't my dream. It was like, you know, these guys that opened that owned the company and I was kind of like working for them. And for the first time, I like had a boss. And had to work nine to five. And like, you know, I'm working for somebody else's dream. And I didn't like that at all. You know, it was, uh, I was always fiercely independent my whole life. And here I am like struggling in my thirties, like, you know, with his family. And, um, you know, it, it, in a sense to work a job like that, it, it you know, the thing is, it just, it takes up so much of your time. That it's like your whole life just becomes this job that you don't really care about. You know what I mean? And you're there all day long. And I'm driving for two hours to get there. And I'm making money. I'm supporting my family. You know, so that's like, you know, that's like a necessity for me, especially when you have like little kids. But it wasn't something that I, I was really fulfilling to me. You know, for my whole life, I had done these things that like it was I had a sense of like, this is a purpose-driven life. I'm helping people. I'm putting out a good message, you know, and people would come up to me all the time, all the time. And they'd be like, you today changed my life. I stopped drinking. I stopped doing drugs. You know, even with shelter, people would come up to me, you know, I really love your anti-materialistic message. It really took me to, to heart. You know, it, it kind of like changed, moved my life in a different direction. And that to me felt really good. You know, the websites not wasn't doing that. No, for people. <laughs> no. it was at a time where like, you know, it was in the 2000s. So like technology is really taken off. And there was this company that made they would basically pipe music through your whole house. You know, it was before you had like, you know, Spotify and speakers in every house. They would come in. They put speakers in every in every you know room of your house. They would put touch pads in every room of your house. And then they would hook up like they digitize all your music and they would like, you know, they basically hook up your music so you could pipe music through your whole house, which was like unheard of back then. And so we had huge clients. We had what's his name? Fit, Fit 50 Cent was one of our clients. And it was basically rich people that we would pipe music through their whole house. You know, so I got paid well. But really, is that what I want to do for the next 40 years of my life? Like have rich it people. It wasn't even your music. Wasn't even my music. Wasn't my com- <laughs> wasn't my company. Like I'm helping Fifty Cent, you know, listen to rap all day. It's not the most fulfilling thing. And like I'm sitting, and I'm really thinking, like, am I going to do this for the rest of my life? Like, you know, I'm making money. I'm taking care of my family, but it's kind of pointless. <laughs> and especially after coming off this tear of like, you know, I felt like what I was doing was important and it was helping people. And I just didn't get that same sense anymore. And um, after that, I got a job being a graphic design teacher where I was making even more money. And I tell you, that was even more that was even more soul crushing because the commute was was crazy. Again, it was it was another like hour long commute. And um, that was that that was actually a really sad time in my life, because here I here I have little kids like my kids are, are, are real small. Again, I'm waking up at five o'clock in the morning. I'm leaving really early. I'm barely seeing my kids. I'm driving for over an hour to get to this computer school. And it was kind of cool. Like when I first started, I was just teaching all the graphic design classes. So I was teaching the Illustrator, the Photoshop classes, the InDesign classes, like all stuff that I knew 
really, really well. You know, I studied them in school to the advanced level. You know, I got all these advanced certifications and all these programs. Like I knew them inside and out. So, you know, teaching these classes, it was very, very easy for me because I, I, I knew the, the material very well. But as it turns out, like as I got, as time went on with this company, they wanted me to teach, you know, they, they would downsize the teachers and then they would make the teachers teach more classes. So I was starting to, you know, they started making me teach Microsoft Word. And then, hey, can you teach this Excel class? And then can you teach this Outlook class? And like, you know, I'm teaching all these things that like I don't have any freaking interest whatsoever. Like, what do I care about Excel? I hate numbers. I hate math. Now, I'm one of those creative type people. Like, it's just not part of our brain. But this is what finally happened. The boss, I worked for, I taught a class, I'm exhausted. And the owner of the company comes up and he, and he slams a project software level two manual on my desk. Oh. <laughs> and he says, hey, man. One of the teachers got sick. Nobody else can teach this class. You got to teach this class tomorrow. And I looked at him and I said, I've never used project software in my life. I don't even know what it is. You expect me to go home and learn project software overnight and come in tomorrow and teach it for eight hours? And I was like, it's not even the level one class. And he says, yeah, I know. Here's the level one manual. You got to learn the level one manual. And then you got to learn all the exercises in the level two manual. And you got to come in here tomorrow and you got to teach that intermediate class. And I'm looking at the guy and I said, dude, that's impossible. He said, there's no one else to do it. You either do it or you're fired. And he said it so flippantly. And I knew he meant it too. Like, like I was just some kind of like disposable piece of crap that if he didn't, do, if I didn't do this, he was really, he, he was going to fire me. And I was just, and I went home that night. I learned, like, uh, I, I had to take a special computer home because, of course, I don't have the software on my, I got this laptop. I'm going through level one. I'm, like, for hours trying to just wrap my head around this software to even understand what it is. And then I was up the whole entire night going through all the exercises for level two. And then I get in there the next day, and you can imagine, there's a bunch of project managers from all these different big businesses who've paid thousands of dollars. It's like a joke, dude. These people know the software way better than me. <laughs> They've been project managers their yeah, whole they're life. They're going to figure you out immediately. Using yeah. the software. It's like a joke. Like I'm up here faking on my feet, having a miserable time, just trying to fake my way through this class. Dude, it was miserable. Like when I actually got into that class and I understood how people had already practically mastered the software, I, I, I'm just trying to survive the day. Like literally, that's like how it was. It was so stressful. It was so horrible. I didn't sleep a wink the whole night because I had to study the whole night. I was so fried when I walked out of that class. And it was just like a culmination of, you know, months of just being fried over this, you know, over this job. Like I'm really unhappy at this job. And I was so pissed off too. I was so tired and stressed and freaking pissed off. And finally the day ended and I walked into the owner's office and I took those two manuals and I freaking threw them down on the desk as hard as, as, hard as I could. And I looked at him, I said, don't you ever 
do that to me again. I haven't slept. I've been up all night. I was like, don't you get it? We just cheated a whole room full of people. I was like, dude, what you're selling is the class. Like you're selling people like an inferior product. Like I just went in there and bullshitted my way for eight hours. It was stressful. You know, these people knew way more about it. It It's like, dude, I just cheated a bunch of people. Like, what the hell are you doing, dude? And you want to know what the guy said to me? He said, not one person asked for their money back. And that's all I care about. He said, this is business. Business means I'm trying to maximize my profits and I'm trying to minimize my deficits. And he said, you're a deficit to me. He goes, I have to pay you. And therefore, you're a deficit. I don't look at you as, as a plus. I'm looking at you as, as a negative. And this is business. I'm going to pay you as little as I can. And I'm going to get the maximum profits that I can out of the for the payments for the class. And I'm going to try to fill as many seats as I can. And I'm going to try to pay you the least I can. And that is business. If anybody ever tells you that anything is different than that, they're lying. It's all about maximizing profits, minimizing your deficits. You're a deficit to me. Um, if you don't like it, you can leave. And you know, you know what I said? I said, fuck you. I quit. And I and let me tell you, you, it was like I got two little kids and I just quit my high paying job. It was nuts. Well, that, that's what made you teach the class in the first place. I would assume like just thinking about your family and having to take care, you know, take care of them. I mean, that's the only reason you did that in the first place. right? I'm thinking I'm going to get fired if I don't do this. Like I have to stay up all night. And like I knew I was staring down like I knew what I was staring down because I've done it before where I had to teach a class that I knew very little about the software. And it's terrible. And it's, and, you know, on top of that, it's just a big cheating thing. Well, at, least, I mean? at least he was honest with you right there. Because if he, he could have just tried to bullshit his way out, you might have, like, stayed on. He yeah, was, he showed you his true colors. <laughs> I mean, that, made, was, that probably made the decision a heck of a lot easier. He was, he was blatantly honest. But you want to know something? That's not, that's not how everybody looks at business. That's how asshole, materialistic people <laughs> in, this, in this world look at business. And you want to know something? It's actually destroyed, destroyed our whole culture. Because it's all about what you can take and not what you can give. This guy didn't give a crap if people learned anything in the class. He didn't care. Like I just saw in his face. He didn't care one tiny little bit if anybody learned anything. He did not care. As long as he was getting paid, that's what all it was about. It's all about how what he can take. He doesn't give a crap about what he can give. That's the spiritual bankruptcy of our culture that's making people on that's making everybody unhappy. Like I don't care how many Porsches he has, I don't care how many boats he has, he's gonna feel completely unfulfilled. He'll probably be one of those type of people that's like 70 years old on his deathbed. What the hell did I do with my life? It doesn't um selfish materialistic people are unhappy people across the board. That's just like a that's just like a universal truth of this world. <laughs> and you can have as many toys and as much stuff as, as you want, but that is just like an ironclad law of this world. So I'm sure that guy is uh, to this day is like, unless he's kind of like turned around his life. I don't know. I hope he has. I, I guarantee you that that guy's unhappy. He's probably drinking away his problems right now. <laughs> So you're saying even if I could afford the Chunking Can Suck It LP, I wouldn't be as happy as I am now. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I, you know, I think you could probably, I think you could probably buy 
stupider stuff. I mean, if that record <laughs> meant a lot to you when you were a kid. <laughs> You know. All right, we're going to we're going to job number four. <laughs> yeah, so so I quit my job, and it was like I, I just did it like on the spur of the moment. But I knew I had, dude, I had to quit that job. Like I couldn't work another day. I, I just couldn't do it. Like I knew I had to change my life, and that like I was totally unfulfilled at this job. And then I got home, and it's just like you know, I I got to tell my wife like I had just quit, and she, let me tell you, she wasn't sympathetic whatsoever <laughs> what are we gonna do now you know we got these two little kids you know it's just like um and i thought to myself i was like okay i did the nine to five thing i did the soul crushing thing what can i do like that i can actually just like make money off of that's that's gonna be somehow sort of fulfilling for me and this was a huge turning point in my life I said, what am I really interested in? I'm really interested in yoga. I'm interested in Krishna. I've studied, I studied Vedic knowledge for, you know, over a, you know, a decade at that point, you know, for 15 years or so, I had immersed myself in learning Bhagavad Gita, learning Srimad Bhagavatam, learning yoga sutras, learning all this stuff, just because I was just interested in it. You know, I would go to India and I would live in India for months and just study all this, you know, stuff from the yoga tradition. And it was beyond a passion for me. It was like a lifestyle for me. And I said, this is what my life really revolves around. This is important stuff. Like, how can I kind of like take this stuff that I'm interested in and give it to other people, but still kind of make money? And I was like, you want to know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open up a yoga studio. And everybody told me I was crazy. Don't do it. Just just go out and get a regular job. Even my, you know, uh, my wife at the time was like, you're crazy. Don't do it. Just get a job where you get a paycheck. And I was just like, I'm not I I just can't go through that again. And I'm going to roll the dice. (laughs) I'm going to see what happens. And I'm going to bet on myself. It could be a complete failure. It could I could lose a lot of money and then whatever. Then I'll go back to another soul crushing desk job. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I opened up this yoga studio and I, and I picked this town called Chatham, which was halfway between Hudson, where I live now, which is like a little kind of like small city, pretty cool place. It's almost like a little kind of Soho place stuck in upstate New York. And then there was Albany and there was like, there was a famous, you know, big yoga studio in Hudson that I actually had worked at. I, I, I taught there at one point. And then there's big yoga studios in Albany, but there's absolutely nothing in between. So this town Chatham was kind of like in between. Market research. Yeah. And, and not <laughs> only that, but there's, you know, upstate New York is filled with a lot of rich people. I mean, what to speak of like now, you know, after, you know, whole COVID thing happened. A lot of the, like, these rich New Yorkers, they moved in up, they moved up state New York. I mean, Hudson is just like where I live. It's just like booming. You can't even buy a house anymore. They're all bought up by people that used to live on the Yeah, there was like a New York side. Times article about it, I think. Uh, and they were like, oh, it's because it's, it's like an artist conclave. Doesn't Tommy Stinson from The Replacements live there? I see him all the time. <laughs> oh, man. I don't want to. He, he complimented my bass playing once. Did he? <laughs> yes. It's always cool to see him, but when I see him, man. Oh, oh he's a mess, man, right? That dude looks, that dude looks haggard. <laughs> like just from you and like he still kind of like drinks and you know 
it's that, that's how oh, the lifestyle him when you're living the rock and roll lifestyle, you know, now he's in like guns <laughs> and roses and stuff. It takes it like anytime you're in a position where you can drink night after night and still get paid. And that kind of becomes your job. That takes a toll on you, man. There's been that lifestyle element of yoga and you see it all the time now where it's like, there's a lot of people who go to yoga classes because they, you know, it's the thing they do. It's their exercise outlet or whatever. And you see all these classes where they're like, oh, we're going to have like a wine thing afterwards and stuff. Like, does that drive you crazy? Uh, a little bit, but I try not to get too judgmental because I think yoga is so powerful. Yoga is almost like, it's like a, it's like a river that has a really fast current. Like if you get in that current and you get, you step into that river that's got a really fast current, you're going to be carried downstream. And I think that yoga is like that. I think like when you get into yoga, it's naturally going to bring you to the philosophy of yoga, at least at some point for, for a lot of people. And I've seen a lot of people get into yoga for kind of like materialistic reasons. And then a year later, they're like, devotees practically <laughs> um, so I, I i try not to get to, it does drive me crazy in kind of like an external sense you know when i see kind of like you know well, the material you know taking like something yoga it's like yoga that's meant to spiritually liberate you and seeing people do it you know in a completely materialistic way but it's weird you know you get into yoga and you get and you move into, you know, you find different teachers and there's a lot of, you know, kind of like bhakti teachers in the yoga, in the yoga scene today, even in like America and stuff. And you'd be surprised, man, people. It could, it could be like a ska core version of yoga, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that's, that's you do that for a little while and then you get into it and do it into the real stuff. Yeah. Right? Then you get, then you get into minor threat. <laughs> I try not to be too judgmental about that kind of stuff. And at the same time, I try to be a teacher that gives people the real deal yoga. And it seems like, you know, yoga has become so popular in, in the West now for, for a lot of years. I mean, it's really kind of like if you look at the yoga is one of those things like it, like if you look at I remember one time a person did a they were opening up a new studio and they did like a business presentation and I was there. And the graph of, of yoga's popularity like from the seventies to like now it's just up and up and up and up. And it just hasn't stopped every single year. Yoga gets more popular. It's, it's crazy how yoga is just kind of like, it's one of those. For some reason I thought it was like a cyclical trend thing, like belly dancing. It's, it sounds like it's not, not at all. You say that about everything. <laughs> every single year, yoga gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know, um, more kind of like mainstream it's really like it's kind of a cool thing i mean it's definitely cool if you're into yoga because it's one of those things that's just on well, it, also feels, it also feels like the more disconnected people feel the more they're going to gravitate towards things like yoga that exactly. even if it's for a temporary moment in time make them feel more connected to themselves exactly. and to the world around them. people are so disconnected even from their own self what to speak of their own bodies they don't know how to eat they don't know how to keep themselves healthy. They don't know, like, you know, people are just like, we got our gadgets and we got our iPhones and we got the internet, we got the Wi-Fi, but people are like not feeling complete and whole and fulfilled in life. That's for sure. And right. the, when more they, the more they burn themselves up out on their devices, the more they're going to come to you. Yeah. The more they appreciate, <laughs> things, the more they appreciate things like yoga that actually kind of like address this stuff, especially like the yoga that I teach. Like I try to teach yoga that I learned in India, which is much more than a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. And um, so I opened up, I rolled the dice. I opened up that yoga studio 
and it was it was it was one of those another one of those like pivotal moments in my life. I didn't know if it was going to work. I worked really hard on it. I marketed it to the best of my ability. Luckily, I was like a graphic designer. I made all the signs and I you know, did everything myself. And I made flyers and I passed out flyers and like I you know I went to every store and every mailbox and I I literally would do eight classes a day and I was the only teacher. My day would start. I would get to that yoga studio at six in the morning and I would get home at around like eight. And I taught every class. I thought, you want to be exhausted? Teach eight yoga classes every single day for a year. <laughs> you know, I finally got to, I think it was like, I had opened that studio for like eight months and I finally built it up to the point where I could hire another teacher. And I was so happy to just have one other teacher to help me teach all these classes. And then finally, you know, the, it just, it, it kind of took off. It was really, it was really cool. I made money my very first month which is unbelievable for a new business. And um, for me, I loved it. It wasn't even like work. I mean, in one sense, it's hard work because a lot of like, you know, physical stuff, you know, that I, that, you know, I had to do for hours and hours and hours, like exercising for, you know, eight hours a day. But uh, I loved it. And I really felt like, okay, I'm in control of my own life. I'm doing something that I love. I don't have some boss breathing down my neck and I'm some kind of disposable cog in his materialistic machine. I got, you know, I finally felt like, you know, I I was, you know, had some sovereignty over my own destiny. I felt like I was giving something to people, something that was valuable and something that was helping their lives. And they were, and I could see people, you know, I could see people over the months, they're coming in, they're getting healthy, they're losing weight, they're becoming happier. You know, I would always, every single class I did, I would start without, with some kind of like Dharma talk or some sort of like yoga philosophy talk. And I would always chant, you know, I would, I would, you know, sing kirtan, I would chant mantras, you know, every single class and people really got into it. And we would have kirtans and we would have yoga philosophy classes and I would invite monks to come and talk and all the stuff that I had been fascinated by, like, you know, since I was a kid getting into all this Krishna stuff. Now this was something that I could give back to people in a real tangible way. And I went from being miserable at work to being so happy at work. And it really made all the difference. It's like I probably made and. I actually carved out a pretty decent living after a while. Like, you know, I wasn't making a ton of money, but I was making, you know, I lived in upstate New York. You know, my my expenses were pretty low and I could make a pretty decent living and, you know, not have to worry too much about money. And I really felt like, you know, it was something that I was good at and it was helping other people. And I had that same kind of like purpose driven life again, like I had when I was in Youth of Today and, and, and Shelter. And I felt like I had something to give and it really made all the difference. And I've been, do, I've been teaching yoga. You know, I still teach, I still do graphic design on the side. I, I have my graphic design side hustle, <laughs> but you know, mostly ever since that day, I've been mainly you know, putting all my you know, time and energy into being a yoga teacher. And it's something that I really, really, really love. And, um, I think that's something that's like, really, that's also really important that you have to love what you do and you have to feel like what you're doing is actually making a difference. And if well, you, I, I just learned to, I just learned today, you've made a name for yourself because my boss was, is, has a side hustle as a yoga teacher. And I was like, Hey, I need some yoga teacher questions. And then we were talking about it. And he's like, John Purcelli, 
I've taken his class. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's funny. And he went on and on and on, knew everything about what you're doing. And I'm like, holy crap, you're like, you're like the John Purcell of yoga. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny because, you know, a lot of people that take my class, they know nothing that was into hardcore. <laughs> crazy like just, they just think I'm part of an under the mild mannered yoga teacher who's teaching them how to do handstands and chanting and stuff like that. Um, they don't I, know that you close down the matinees. <laughs> yeah, I actually, you know, I actually do have a fair amount of hardcore people in my classes, too. Yeah, so you'll always see that random person in the chain of strength shirt, ready to, <laughs> you know, ready to, ready to do some handstands. Three colors, three colors. Well, I was, was going to ask, especially with the, uh, especially with the online classes, do you have like the hardcore tourists that are like, I'm going to come take a, a Porcel yoga class, and like they're trying to do it for the first time? I mean, I'm sure you welcome that, but I mean, is that is that something that each class you have at least one person that's that's coming from that angle all the time? And I have I have <laughs> steady people in my online classes that are hardcore guys that have been taking my class for like you know they show up every day and they take my class every single day you know monday through friday or you know i I actually teach monday through saturday and they're in it to win it like they they love it that's like their exercise for the day and i give like i give a really hard class like you're gonna sweat you're gonna get in good shape you know i've had people that have like lost tremendous amount of weight and gotten in like really good shape just from doing yoga like people don't realize that you know the type of yoga that i learned you know it's funny because I remember I took a yoga class when me and Ray were living on 15th Street when we were still in our in our cleaning houses days, you know, when I was like 19. And there was a yoga studio called Integral Yoga. It was like it was a health food store, a bookstore, and they had a yoga studio that was right around the corner from our house. So I remember I went to a yoga class and the class was just so damn easy. It was one of these yoga classes. It was like Breathe in and bring your hands over your head and then bring your hands to namaste in front of your heart. And then like it was mostly just stretching and breathing. And it wasn't a very physically challenging class at all. And quite frankly, I was just like, yoga is boring, man. I don't want to do yoga. I want to go do a stage dive. You know, I was like 19 (laughs) years old. It sounds like a singing lesson. (laughs) Yeah, it was just very easy and it was very slow slow pace. And I just, I just assumed that that's what yoga was. And so I was kind of like, people would come up to me, they'd be like, Oh yeah, do you want to take a yoga class? I'd be like, nah, you know, I was more into like going to the gym and, you know, doing a bunch of push-ups and, you know, more stuff that was way more like physical, you know, because that's like, I was just like a hardcore kid who liked, you know, to do physical stuff. And then when I, you know, I was really, I really caught the yoga bug when I was already a devotee. I was already a Christian devotee and I was in India and someone said, Hey, do you want to come take a yoga class? And I was, and even then, even though I was into, into like, you know, the yoga philosophy and, you know, the yoga tradition, I was like, nah, and the person said, <laughs> person said, come on, man. It's a really, it's, it's a really famous teacher actually. And I think you're really going to like it. And he kind of like dragged me there, like literally like dragged me there. I didn't want to go. So my teacher in India was actually a direct student of this of this man named Krishnamacharya, who was an amazing like this, like the stuff that they like they did back then. It was like a real hardcore physical form of yoga that's called vinyasa, which means like you take movement and you incorporate movement with the breathing and with the poses. And I took this. First of all, the guy was like, I think he was 68 or 67 when I took his class. And the way you do it in India, you do it outside. You don't even have mats. You have these like little kind of cloth things. 
And you don't do, and you separate the men and the girls. The girls take the yoga at a different spot. And you, you, you basically take this thing that's called a gumsha, which is like a kind of like a thin towel. And everybody's got this gumsha on, and you sort of wrap it kind of like underneath your, you know, under, underneath your legs, and you kind of tuck it in at the back. And it almost turns into like a little pair of shorts. And you don't wear a shirt. You just wear this gumsha, basically like this towel that's kind of tied like a pair of shorts. And this guy was 67 and he took off his shirt and he put on his gumsha. And man, this guy was 67 and he was ripped. It was weird. <laughs> First of all, it was weird when I met him because I met him and he was like an old man. He had long gray hair and like a white beard. He kind of like looked like a yogi. But when I got introduced to him and I looked at him, he didn't have a line on his face. Like he looked like a young man with a fake beard on and fake like long <laughs> silver hair. And I was I remember like I was so taken when I got close. I was like thinking this guy doesn't have a wrinkle on his face. Like he looks so young, even though he's got this big, long silver beard. And then he like took off his shirt and he had the body of like an Olympic swimmer. Like he was jacked, six pack, really strong. The guy's 67. <laughs> and then he proceeded to give us the most kick butt. It keyed the hard power yoga class that lasted for three hours. And it was so physical and so rough. And it was filled with like you know, kind of like calisthenic type stuff. And after I took that class, I was in love. I was like, this is exactly like this has everything that I like in it. It's got movement. It's really hard physically. You know, you can get really strong from doing this type of yoga. Like I was exhausted, like after that class. And I was just like, and he also, you know, he was, he also gave the yoga philosophy. We also did the chanting. He was a devotee actually himself. And I was like, I just fell in love with it. I was like, man, this is like, I've been waiting for this my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's so many gifts that you get from that kind of yoga. First of all, you're keeping yourself healthy. First of all, you're moving your body in ways that you may have not moved your body that way in like 20 years. And so you're reclaiming the movement of your body. All the different systems of your like it's not like when you go and work out. Believe me, I like to work out. I like to go to CrossFit. I like to keep myself strong. I always you know, I always think be strong to be useful. That's like a quote from Adam Blake from H2O. He's a fitness instructor. One time he put out a meme that said, be strong to be useful. And I really find that to be true. Like the stronger that you are, the more healthy you are, the more you have to give to other people. Like it's, it's, it's in with your life mission. Like you want to, you know, if, if you want to be a happy, fulfilled person, you have to start thinking of yourself as a contributor in this world and not a taker. And so yeah, when it's you, like hands on a hard body, that movie hands on a hard body, they're like car costs you money. Truck makes you money. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> never, never, never caught that one. <laughs> it, it's particularly fulfilling for me when you see people make these like radical changes in their life. You know, they come to the yoga class, you know, they eat meat, they drink, they're overweight. They're unhappy. You know, that was, that's kind of like they felt disconnected. That's what kind of brought them to a yoga class in the first place. And then you just see over time, you know, slowly but surely, they start giving up their bad habits. They start eating healthier. You know, they'll, they'll give up the meat. They'll go vegetarian. They'll go vegan. They'll start to lose weight. They'll start to, you know, and, and they'll start to think in their own life. It's like, how can I connect with my source, with my higher power? And then how can I take that and how can I kind of like, 
pay that forward in the world in the world and see people as spiritual beings, not as people that I can take from and exploit and use for my own purposes, like pawns in my own chess game. <laughs> and you you see people, man, people make radical, incredible changes in their life. And I know it because yoga did that for me. Yeah, I'm just trying to basically pay it forward. And I'm lucky enough that I'm able to do it in such a way where I'm able to at least, you know, I, believe me, ever since, you know, COVID kind of messed me up bad. You know, I used to do a lot of traveling and yoga retreats and workshops, and I would go to California regularly and, you know, the West Coast regularly and, you know, teach. And that can be, that's really where you can like kind of make a lot of money, not doing the individual classes. Um, and that really, so, it's so just like a, like a weekend, like a long weekend or something like that. I have done some of that, but you know, that, you know, with COVID with like the lockdown and, and all this stuff, that stuff stopped in its tracks, but I was lucky enough to teach online and, uh, that's kind of taken off a little bit and I'm, I'm lucky enough to, I'm, you know, I'm not making as much money as I did, you know, pre-COVID. I'm probably making half of what I did, but I'm still able to do what I love and kind of like and kind of make a living. And as things sort of open up again, I'll be able to do more traveling and retreats and, you know, all kind of fun. Do you stuff still have like a brick that. and mortar location that you can use when things get back to normal or do you give that up? When I moved to California, I actually sold it to Ray Capo, aka Ruganoth, who's pretty pretty big time yoga. Oh, his Instagram—he seems to be everywhere, you know, traveling and, and teaching classes yeah, and everything. Yeah, yeah, he's um he's he's pretty world, you know, known all around the world, which is um you know pretty incredible. He's a really good teacher too. Um, so I sold it to him, and he kind of kept it he kept it going for for years. And then when COVID hit. You know, of course, the studio was closed down and he was still paying rent on it. And he did that for like a year and a half. And then finally, he's just like, this is stupid. I'm going to close it. So it was sort of it was sort of uh, an end of an era there. I was, I was really sad to hear because it was, uh, you know, I just spent years of my life sort of building that place up and, you know, starting a yoga scene where there wasn't a yoga scene before. Should have offered it to um, Steve Reddy. Maybe he would have bought it. <laughs> yeah. Not a bad idea. He's got a lot of money these days. <laughs> I have a quick question. So I know you don't want to like speak negatively about yoga teachers, but is there red flags where I'm taking yoga class and I shouldn't take a second one? I'm thinking about you teaching the project class <laughs> version of yoga. Yeah. Does that exist? And like, how would I know? I think it's less likely you're going to find something like that because I think yoga is the type of thing that, you know, if you're going to be a yoga teacher, you're pretty into it. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to, you know, dedicate your life and you're going to learn all this stuff and go to a training and go to advanced trainings. And, you know, a lot of these you know people, you know, have 500 hour trainings, 800 hour trainings, thousand hour trainings. You got to be pretty into yoga to do to do all that. You know what I mean? So I think, you know, there are I've taken yoga classes that were terrible by a teacher who didn't know what they were doing and practically injuring the people that were there. And like, you know, it's like anything else. There's going to be, you know, there's, it's not like you can just go, you know, to a yoga class and expect, you know, every teacher is going to be the same. You just have to kind of find teachers that are not only good teachers, but also kind of like resonate with you. And, um, you know, your vibe attracts your tribe too. Like, you know, I just put it out there that I'm doing a very kind of spiritual yoga class and that's how I teach. And even when I worked at that place, um, purple yoga. I remember for my, for my, I had to try out, I had to do a class and the owner was there and the owner was actually a really good yoga teacher too. Um, and so I started my class with a little talk 
And then I had my harmonium, which is like this little pump piano. And I chanted mantras and I taught everybody the mantras and we all chanted together. And then I gave like an incredibly kick-ass class and I wanted it to be really physical because I wanted the owner to know that like this is the type of class that I teach and it's going to be a really good workout. So I made it an especially hard class. And he came up to me at the end and he said, man, I absolutely loved your class. But um, we're kind of like not really a spiritual studio. Like this is just kind of like a job to me and I'm really just selling physical yoga. So can we cut out the, the chanting of the mantras and the talk? And I just looked at him and I was just like, no, like this is how I, this is how I teach. <laughs> and you either got to like let- Karen Crystal being like, no stage diving. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of like that. Like that. Like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> like this is part of it. Like this is how I teach. Everybody get up on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like that. It's like, you know, that's how, you know, that's how the band was. And, you know, that's how I taught, <laughs> that's how I taught yoga. And luckily he was just kind of like, okay, I'll take it. And, um, I did, I did really well in California. Like, really well I, I taught in southern california and that was that was really good for me and it, if, if you can't do spiritual yoga in california where can you <laughs> um you'd be surprised man california is a pretty materialistic place it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was in downtown la <laughs> i feel like i feel like you should you know um Bill's wife and I were talking about this when we were at Punk Rock Bowling and we were like, I'm surprised there isn't some kind of like you should you should corner the market on those festivals and do like, you know, do some some morning classes or whatever, because there are people that are going to those things that aren't staying out till four in the morning drinking every night and that like would want to take a class you, and do stuff yeah, like you that. Know, the, the singer for Peg Boy definitely needed a yoga class. <laughs> totally. You want to know something? <laughs> I actually talked to some of the people there and I was like, yeah, I would love to do a yoga class. And, you know, we could do it. We could make it part of punk rock bowling. And um, the guy said, I would absolutely love to do something like that. But because we got added kind of late because we got swapped out for Gorilla Uh, Biscuits, he said he said there wasn't enough time. But he said, if you guys play again and we have some time, I would love to organize it and get the mats together and get a place. And, you know, we'll make it like we'll we'll put it on the schedule at, at punk rock bowling. And, you know, I do that stuff all the time. Like, you know, usually when I go on tour in Europe or even in like America, I'll, I'll book a yoga class at a studio during the day. And then we'll, you know, I'll teach yoga during the day. I'll do like a workshop during the day and then we'll play at night. So I, I I do 11 AM yoga noon. Black Dahlia does his X-rated songs. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like that, man. Like I'll do, I'll I'll do this real spiritual workshop and then I'll get to this dirty bar. Filled with a bunch of punk rockers and like, you know, sometimes people, sometimes yogis that take my class, they'll be like, what are you doing at the class? I'll be like, oh, I'm in this punk band and we're playing. Sometimes they'll come and they don't know anything about punk, but they just find it kind of interesting that this yoga teacher is also a punk rocker. And they'll come and they'll just be like, it'll be like a judge show. And they'll be like, what <laughs> the hell is going on here? <laughs> Can you imagine just being a total civilian and then you just walk into a judge show in like Berlin at SR36? <laughs> Everybody's losing their mind and you're just like, there's this like biker guy singing and he's screaming like a lion. It's, it's a hard thing to wrap your head around. I just got one, one question about um, 
Is this the bug out society guy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dave Stein told me this story that you had to throw somebody out of youth of today because they showed up at the rehearsal studio wearing a leather jacket and leather chaps and eating a roast beef sandwich, and he was spitting roast beef. <laughs> they, they, it, it was a kid that tried out as a drummer for Youth of Today. And yes, he showed up in a leather jacket. I think it was a hamburger. <laughs> We're like, nope. You <laughs> get on that drum stool, dude. <laughs> you did not understand the assignment. Well, what about the leather chaps? What about the leather chaps? He didn't have leather chaps. Actually, tried out at that at that same tryout and became the drummer was Mike Judge. Oh, there you awesome. go. <laughs> Mike Judge became the drummer. <laughs> now here's another thing, you know. Uh, I wasn't. I mean, I'm always been straight edge, pretty much. You know, I don't drink or take drugs or anything like that. But I was never into the movement back then, you know. But but now, in the New York City, everywhere I go, I walk down the block, a block from my house. Anywhere I go, I smell pot. So you think you could do anything about that? <laughs> uh, we'll have to get Mike Judge down there. To- <laughs> <laughs> hey, we have a mayor election next That's week. Right. I would vote. I would vote for Mike Judge for mayor. Probably make a pretty decent mayor. <laughs> So, Porcel, I, I wanted to definitely let everyone know that if they want to take one of your online classes, what's the best way to just go find you on Instagram? That's another thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to make a website where you can actually sign up for the classes on the website. That's going to be coming soon. But right now, the best way to take my class is you go to Instagram, and my Instagram handle is the Hardcore Yogi, all one word, the Hardcore Yogi. No spaces, no underscores, anything like that. And if you DM me, I have a whole kind of like instruction thing on how you can take the classes. The classes are only 10 bucks for now, probably going to go up in a, in a little bit, but you know, it's, I try to keep it pretty cheap. So it's affordable for people. And I teach every single day, um, six days a week, Monday through Saturday at 10 AM New York time. Um, I may add a morning class too, when I, when I redo everything, but for right now, there's just one class sign up. There's a lot of hardcore kids on it. It's a fun class, a very physical class. Even if you're a beginner, like you're going to expect to get your butt kicked, but I always give kind of like, I do have beginners in my class. I have advanced people that are like yoga teachers. And then I also have beginners. I always give easier ways for beginners to do kind of some of this hard stuff. So be intimidated. If you've never taken a yoga class, take it, you'll do fine. Take the modifications, take the easier ways until you kind of like, you know, you, you build yourself up to where you can do the hard stuff. But it's it, it's amazing. I got a lot of amazing students in the class that have been taking the class for like a long time. And it's fun. And you'll learn a little bit about, you know, the spiritual side of yoga. And um, it's it's a cool class. I, I, I absolutely I'll take it and leave my camera it. off. <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty of people that leave their camera off <laughs> that's it kids the gig is up the cops are here and your mom is calling jails hospitals and all your friends houses wondering where you've been tune in next week for another fascinating mesmerizing and absolutely unmissable episode and be sure to get on the list and follow the boys on social media at killed by desk this podcast is produced by jesse cannon and if you enjoyed this conversation there's tons more where this came from for only five dollars a month you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month want to help us out with some gas money and to get us to the next show we have merch and more at killedbydesk.com